Welcome to Literacy Mike, where we have conversations about learning. Literacy Mike is produced by Washtenaw Literacy. Believing that literacy is the foundation for a sustainable community, Washtenaw Literacy provides literacy support free of charge to adults through a network of trained tutors. Today, David Christensen talks with Nick Lacey. Their conversation spans many different kinds of barriers to learning, from dyslexia all the way to racism and class in the United States. David and Nick thread a narrative that connects support from both parents, teachers, and mentors to the achievement gap that is seen between the haves and the have-nots, between white and black, and any other color between them. They talk about what it is like to learn at a slower pace and learning through escapism, something many turn to when they are shamed. Nick Lacey is the giving manager at Washtenaw Literacy. I hope you enjoy this conversation about learning. Today we are going to be talking about learning barriers. And um, so Nick, my first question for you is what is your first memory of learning or school? Wow. First memory of school is probably like Little Folks Corner way back getting <laughs> in trouble. Because that was, you know, I think those memories of getting in trouble are the ones that really um, mm-hmm. stick with you. Okay. Um, but in terms of actually like learning my early memories, I'm thinking another one kindergarten getting in trouble. Um, <laughs> not that I got in trouble a lot, but when I but did, that's what it was sticks like, oh, with crap. You. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. That's what sticks and plays in my mind over and over. Uh, I remember, you know, liking Dr. Seuss books and mm-hmm. like, Go Dog Go. Go mm-hmm. Dog Go was my jam. Do you like my hat? I don't know if you know that one at all, Mm-mm. but it's, uh, it's a good read, you know, if you have the opportunity to pick it up. All right. I'll see what I can do. I mean, I remember, you know, in like first grade, not really understanding an assignment. I remember, you know, in like third grade, what reading group you were in was really important. I think I was in like honeycomb. <laughs> um, which wasn't the top one, but it was close. Okay. So when's the first time that you remember sort of struggling with learning? So I think, you know, looking back, having mm-hmm. the kind of filter of time, mm-hmm. um, looking back at it, I can see, I think I, I do have either some kind of dyslexia or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is. When I read, I will often skip words. Or mm-hmm. I will read words like oftentimes when I'm reading a book and there's mm-hmm. a character's name, I won't actually formulate in my mind what the character's name is until like a hundred pages in, you know, mm-hmm. and I'll recognize those letters together, mm-hmm. but I won't actually pronounce it in my mind. Uh, and then, you know, I'll find myself trying to pronounce it and having trouble, you know, kind of decoding mm-hmm. what the word is based on the letters. Um, and so I think, you know, looking back, to when I was a kid, you know, with with my knowledge now, you know, it makes a little more sense. I remember when I was a kid, it must have been like second or third grade, and there was something that was like, you know, someone was saying, um, hello, ma'am, how are you? And I, of course, messed it up, and I said, hello, mama, how are you? You know, and all the kids mm-hmm. thought it was really funny, you know. And so then, you know, I didn't really like reading aloud that much. I mm-hmm. wanted to be, you know, one of those kids who 
did well in school, but reading aloud was not one of my favorites because I was worried I was going to say something wrong. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it wasn't that big of a thing. I know for some kids, it's a lot worse. And, you know, it was just one of those things that looking back now, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that. So I don't want it to make it out to be like this huge traumatic in my childhood. Yeah, it's okay, Nick. We're talking about you, you know, (laughs) so it's a thing that it's a thing that sort of remembers. So that's totally pertinent to bring up. How do you think, you know, that changed your view um, on learning? Because it sounds like you only are now thinking back to it, like, oh, this is something that that was going on. Yeah, I think it was just kind of under the surface that I wasn't really aware of at the time. Okay. Um, And sometimes I do think that I'm kind of a slow learner. You Mm -hmm. know, it takes me a while to process information. Uh, I'm not one of those people that you can hand me, you know, like stereo instructions, and I totally get it. You know, I have to read it a few times thank God for YouTube now, because I can follow the YouTube video, you know, and figure it out that way too. Yeah, at the time, I don't think it really had that much of an impact. But certainly looking back, you know, I can kind of see here and there um, where I popped it set up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now, um, when my kids were a little younger, reading to my kids, you know, my wife is a much better um, reader out loud to the Mm -hmm. kids than I am. And so when I do it, I'm very conscious of, you know, making sure I'm reading the words correctly. And one of the nice things about kids too, is they can call you out on it when you mm-hmm. when you skip a word or. Um, I'm sure that doesn't get old. Yeah. <laughs> but I think too, it's maybe more empathetic. So I've been a Rotarian for a long time. And one of our programs is the Rotary Readers where we go work with kids who are struggling mm-hmm. with uh, reading or math or, you know, I've been volunteering in schools in Ann Arbor. I will often say to the kids when we first start, they will have problems reading and I'll say you know I have this problem sometimes I skip words sometimes I you know miss lines sometimes I mispronounce things that's okay everybody messes up sometimes I mess up a lot it's okay the goal is to get better mm-hmm. and so, you know here we are working together to get better for sure and my hope is that you know when I set that up for the kids I don't want them to go in getting pulled out of class to go do reading thinking oh I'm dumb, you know, I'm, I'm in the dumb group. And so now I have to do this extra work because I don't get it. And I, I just want to set the expectation early that it's okay. You know, it's okay. I, here I am an adult in my forties and I still, you know, miss words and pronounce things, but we can get better together. I wanted to sort of touch base on something that you had mentioned via email, which is your sort of background as a teacher. And I was wondering if your, you know, your own sort of learning challenges impacted how you taught. Yeah, so I think when I was uh, first teaching right out of college, first Mm -hmm. job, so to back up a little bit, I did my student teaching at the College of Worcester, great school in super rural Ohio. Mm -hmm. It was like Amish country in Ohio Uh, and a very small school college, a very big high school, but it was a very rural high school. Then when I started teaching, my wife, uh, girlfriend at the time, matched medical schools out in St. Louis or was accepted uh, in St. Louis at WashU. And so we moved out there right after I graduated from college. And of course, I didn't have a teaching certificate yet in Missouri. It was still in Ohio. So while I was working on transferring that, I worked as a special ed assistant in a school that was, you know, probably one of the lowest performing schools in Missouri 
and in general, not, you know, not a very good school and totally different than the rural school that I was at, you know, the College of Worcester or my experience at Pioneer. So I think it, it was like almost for me just trying to, you know, learn to deal with so many things that were different. Mm-hmm. It was almost more like survival mode. So I didn't have the luxury at the time of kind of sitting back and thinking about, you know, learning styles and things like that. Yeah, I think a big question that, I mean, we've sort of touched on, but I want to dig into a little more is just about how did facing these barriers make you feel? I don't think it really at the time hindered me or even now. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm a slow learner and a slow <laughs> processor. So probably what's going to happen is like two days from now, I'll be like, oh yeah, I should have said this in the podcast with David because <laughs> yeah. this is exactly, you know, like the wheels up here turn yeah. slowly. And maybe that's just a barrier that I have. And once I get it, you know, it's in there mm-hmm. solid. Um, mm-hmm. Like when I took, you know, algebra in eighth grade and really struggled. And then when I took algebra in ninth grade, I was awesome at it. But that's because I'd already done it in eighth grade and struggled with it. You know, it was like the AC algebra in eighth grade. And then you're supposed to be able to skip algebra in ninth grade and do geometry. But mm-hmm. I did algebra again, even though I got a B in eighth grade, you know, the teacher's like, nah, no. Uh, <laughs> um, he was the kind of teacher that would, you know, he believed in public shaming as mm-hmm. a way of motivating children or motivating eighth graders. And so, you know, I think some people, they call eighth graders, they, you know, think they know everything. They, they're so cool. I'm like, no, eighth graders all are really self-conscious because they are trying to build themselves up and make other kids feel bad so they can feel better. Uh, but really they're all, gosh, I don't know what the right word is, have a lot of self-doubts. Yeah, I think we all remember being in eighth grade and I've talked to very few people in my life who like enjoyed it. I think. Right, and then you talk to them, you're like, because you are the <laughs> you were the one that was mean to everybody. <laughs> Thinking about present day, does anything motivate or empower you to learn today? You know, I guess I just want to know stuff. And it's a little bit scary the way the internet is. Like, it's almost like everything you could ever want to know is out there. You just have to find it. I also like to read a lot, but I don't read like really deep interesting stuff. I read a lot of fluff. Hmm. That makes sense. Like no, I don't think, and end of the world. I don't think there's anything wrong with fluff. I think particularly if you have to be on all the time, fluff is all you have time for and that's okay. Is there anything that you want our listeners to take away from your story? No pressure. I, no I want to come up with something profound and interesting for the listeners to take away from my story. <laughs> Again, I'll probably in two days be like, oh man, here's this profound thing that I should have told David at the time, but because my... We'll be back with more from David and Nick after we hear from the sponsors of Literacy Mike. We want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Literacy Mike. If you are enjoying this episode and our mission speaks to you, please consider donating to Washtenaw Literacy. Giving is easy. Just text READ, that's R-E-A-D, or 7323. Send that to 44321, and follow the instructions to give today. Once again, that's READ, R-E-A-D, or 7323. Send that to 
888-444-3241 to give today. Does having or not having mean you can or cannot support your children or maybe your loved ones? What about yourself? How much harder is it to learn as an adult when you've come from a place that is either unable or unwilling to give you the things you need in life to feel supported? Nick talks about the achievement gap, something looked at a lot in education and learning, and how it's connected to access and opportunity. Let's get back to the conversation. You know, something that uh, in my mind sticks with me a lot, too, about learning, and, you know, especially now that we're kind of in this COVID crisis, you know, this is a really difficult time for parents, but especially parents of kids who are already struggling. And, you know, we have this achievement gap in our country, and it's just going to get wider as a result of this between the haves and the have-nots. You know, the haves whose parents are at home right now and are, you know, helping them and have the technology skills and have the math skills versus the have-nots and the parents who, you know, really don't know how to access this technology or, you know, they're low literate already or, you know, maybe they're working in the grocery store, you know, 60 hours a week because, that's their job, this difference between the haves and the have-nots, I'm worried that it's going to grow wider. And when I was teaching, you know, it was really, the school I was at was definitely a, a have-not school, if you will. We were Normandy High School, known for two things. I think two famous graduates. One was Lawrence Maroney, who was a running back for the New England Patriots, for all the sports ball fans. But then the other one was uh, Michael Brown, who was shot and killed at Ferguson. He was there a few years after I was. You know, all of that racial tension was still there and, and all the issues and, you know, inequality was still there at the school uh, when I was there at the time. And it kind of boiled over um, with the Michael Brown incident. Do you mind talking more about your experience as a teacher, something that sort of perked my ears up is you had mentioned that kind of racial tension. How is your experience, you know, as a white man going in and teaching, how did that play out? Yeah, that was, you know, interesting and something that I was not really, wasn't really on my mind at the time. As a, a white guy in a school that was mostly people of color, you know, teachers as well were more often than not people of color too. Uh, you know, as a white guy, it was a totally different experience for me, having never experienced being the minority in the situation. I mean, some of it was kind of funny where the kids all thought I looked like uh, Jim Carrey um, or thought I, you know, looked like a game show host. Of course, I was in my 20s back then. And so that was, you know, that was different. You know, I, I think there were just different cultural things going on. And, and part of that, you know, it was an interesting experience for me because I could start to see and, you know, unpack some cultural things with the kids together. You know, I remember reading a, a primary source document about uh, World War II and when the United States dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And, you know, we were reading the primary source document. And so, of course, all the names were Japanese names. And I remember a student, you know, saying, well, why do we have, why do these people have all these crazy names? And so we talked about, you know, well, one name from a different culture is totally normal in that culture. If you look at some of the names in this classroom in a different culture, they might not sound quote unquote normal to them, or it's not something that you would hear, you know, every day. It was interesting for us to together to be able to unpack that. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and which I think it was good because the kids got it. And when the kids said that I looked like Jim Carrey and that all white people looked alike, you know, we could kind of unpack that as well. All right. Awesome. One of the things. Oh, go on. I'm oh, sorry. You know, one of the things that I found in that teaching was that really literacy skills were were lacking. As a ninth grade teacher, I was to teach um, world history, but then I also had a study skills classroom. And the school district was very interested in kids doing well on these state mandated tests. And so, you know, they would get money for it or not, or they were really wrapped up in making sure that all the kids did well. And so they had these books on like test taking skills and, you know, how to do, how to become a better test taker. And for me, the frustrating part was that it wasn't a matter for most kids. It wasn't whether or not they were able to take a test. It was whether or not they could read and understand what the questions were. You know, we spent that study skills period really working on trying to build reading skills because most of my kids were reading, you know, ninth graders at like a fourth or fifth grade level. Really, literacy was was a big barrier for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember I got a classroom set of Harry Potter books because, you know, I loved Harry Potter. I still love Harry Potter. I remember, too, one of my students came and said, you know, the next day said that her mom wouldn't let her read Harry Potter because it was full of witchcraft and devilry. And I said, OK, well, you know, talk to your mom and bring another book and you can read, you know, whatever book you and your mom decide is fine. And of course, she talks to her mom and brings a book the next day that is totally full of sex and scandalous. I'm like, your mom, let you read this and not Harry Potter. <laughs> OK. And I checked with the mom. Yep, that's what she wants the kid to read. I'm not going to say no. I mean, for me, it was a good experience. At times, I felt like some of the kids were into it, some not so much. It was fun to at least to read Harry Potter. Do you have any any sort of specific memories of working with a kid in your study skills class? Um, maybe someone who either succeeded or worked through their own barriers. If not succeeded, that's okay. But just that who was like really putting in a lot of work in that class? Yeah, there was a girl who came in pretty high skilled already. Now, when you had parent-teacher conferences, it was for me an eye-opening experience because you know the kid, you'd see the kid for months and months, then you'd meet the parent and you'd like, they'd be like, oh, I get it now. This is why you have these problems because your mom came to parent-teacher conferences and she, you know, was interested. You know, this is why, you know, you as a student are doing really well or, oh, you know, your mom came to parent-teacher conferences, and she was high. Now I have a lot more empathy for you as a student. You know, it, it just put a lot of things in perspective. I remember, I feel like one of my favorite memories from teaching was, you know, when uh, when she finished Harry Potter, she read ahead, then came in on a Monday and said, do you have the second book? I was like, really? She said, she said, yeah, you know, TV's boring. There's nothing good on TV. I'm like, oh my God, this is it, you know? <laughs> Um, so that was, I don't want to say proud, but I felt, I felt good. Awesome. No, that's a nice story. Thank you for sharing that. You name your favorite teacher or someone that you respect based on learning. And it could be a teacher that you had or just a figure, like a public figure, anybody. Yeah. Wow. I'm trying to think, you know, there were a lot of great teachers. I think a lot about my middle school experience and you know one who was he was actually a coach rather than my teacher he taught but I never had him was Mr. Fuller. Mr. Fuller was awesome. He's still teaching at Slauson. I think teaches some social studies at Slauson. 
I was in the wrong house, so I didn't have him, but I had him as a basketball coach and a volleyball coach and fantastic guy. Mr. Streit was my gym teacher at uh, Slauson and he was pretty awesome. I'm trying to think about other teachers that I had. Uh, Miss Moran, sixth grade teacher, was really good. What made these teachers or coaches really awesome? What was it about? Uh, You know, I think that they really connected with me in a way that I could tell that they really cared. You know, on some level, all teachers really care. And not all teachers are able to connect to all students. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's just human nature and personalities and things like that. Mr. Fuller and Mr. Strite, I connected with them uh, in such a way that I could tell that they really cared about me as an individual. And, you know, I still run into them around Ann Arbor and they still know my name. They ask about my wife who was there uh, at Slauson at the same time, always very happy to come over and say hi and chat and how you doing and what's new and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think that that bond or that, I don't know, empathy that they had for their mm-hmm. students uh, and they were able to build, you know, great rapport with their students. Or at least with me. I don't know about the other ones, but uh, I don't think I'm alone. No, I don't think so. How did they go about building that? You know, I think a little bit with uh, chit chat and banter you know with the kids and you know there's instructional time but then there's also that time you know at the very beginning of class when all the kids are filing in or at the very end as kids are filing out and you know just making that personal connection of like hey how's it going you know what's new with you that kind of thing Mm -hmm. all right well nick those are all the questions i have for you thank you well thank you Nick, while very funny, brings up a lot of things that make learning as an adult very challenging in the United States. Class and race are most definitely a huge piece of the puzzle, or maybe even what makes up the puzzle pieces. But in with all that is support and the ability to support. Support from people like teachers, from parents, from coaches, and from mentors. As adults, we do need that support too. But adults who grew up on the wrong side of the achievement gap have even greater barriers to achieving that support, let alone opportunity and success. This is why the work of tutors, mentors, and educators who instruct with empathy, compassion, and equality are critical to anyone's success, but especially adult learners. Thank you. Join us again for Literacy Mike, where we have conversations about learning.